to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Well, we're heading in a different direction on today's Unicorns. We're talking all things movies and film tech. Our guest is Matt Drummond. His latest movie, The Secret Kingdom, is in cinemas across Australia. Matt wrote, produced, shot, financed and directed the film. Thus far, it's been a big hit in more than 60 cinemas nationwide. Matt, who now calls Launceston home in Tasmania, is an acclaimed Australian filmmaker. His career has been punctuated with hits and he's been recognised with some incredible peer-wide recognition, including a coveted Emmy Award. I thought it would be a great opportunity to get Matt to explain how modern motion pictures are made and how he brings his ideas to life. G'day, Matt. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be here. Well, it's freezing where I am today in Sydney, Matt. I can only imagine what the weather is like in Tasmania. How long have you called Launceston home? Uh, since 2020 now. It's um, It's been a, a wonderful place to not only um, discover, but initially to ride out the pandemic. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a very... Launceston is an extremely livable city. It's it's a beautiful place. Aesthetically, it appeals to me because of the architecture. It's um, very turn of the century, uh, the mm-hmm. previous century, not the one just passed. Uh, you know, I, I live in a, a, a place that was built in 1890, so it's steeped in history down here. I hope there's heating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's steeped in heating too, absolutely. I've got a... Uh, hydronic system throughout the house so there's a radiator on every wall it's uh or in every room so yes no i'm not i'm not um sitting here chattering um through my teeth so it's all good and and what was it that made you move because i know um you were putting together the movie in sydney what made you move to tasmania we only went down on a quick holiday and um decided that we liked it and you know, we were looking at, at new places to go. We'd been overseas for a while and, and you know, back and forth to, to Sydney. And, you know, I grew up in the Blue Mountains, but it was time for a change for my wife and I and um, quite partial to an island. And we came down to this little island down the bottom. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Look, it's just a stunning place. When we got here, there was just that sense of wonder again, you know. It's, it's an incredible landscape down here it's quite diverse um you know i can be in the ski fields in 30 minutes from my house i can be at the beach within 30 minutes from my house you know it's um you've got a lot of different options and the only thing that really slows you down great golf courses too matt oh barn burgles incredible Mm. one of of the best Uh, the only thing that'll slow you down here is how many um, cellar doors are between here and any destination you've got. <laughs> and the cheese, the the wines and the cheese. Just incredible. Yeah, we went for a little jaunt round to Freysnay on the weekend to the Lobster Shack and oh. sat by the water enjoying lobster rolls and, uh, you know, Pinot Gris. And then we um, had to stop in at another cellar door on the way home. And, uh, yeah. It was it's, Half your life. it's a very gracious way to live down here. Well, let's go back to the beginning of your professional career. You're now you're now a movie director and a and a writer and producer. But 
where did your professional career begin? I think you could probably trace it back to when I was a kid and, and I was trying to put together, you know, bands and things like that. That's, you know, I was, yeah. I was, I was getting into to the business side of things when I was a child. But, um, you know, the, the current sort of trajectory came from doing visual effects basically straight out of school. I was lucky enough that we had a friend of the family who was doing the cinema slides for Pearl and Dean at the time, which was, you know, I remember the name, yes. Yeah, they were a precursor to Val Morgan and, in fact, they were in competition to Val Morgan. I think Val Morgan won in the end. But um, that gave me an incredible uh, playground to explore uh, graphic design, creativity, you know, and, and really hone my skills at a time when desktop publishing had just become a thing. You know, in fact, I was working out of an office where they still did cut and paste graphic design upstairs and they were doing um, uh, font pressing and, and bromides and things in the back room. Like it was, <laughs> it's really the, the changeover to, to the digital. You're showing your age now, Matt. Oh, I, I am indeed. So <laughs> I, I was fascinated by that, but... I always wanted things to move, you know. I, I remember being as a, you know, being a kid and getting all my Star Wars figures together, and you know, taking photographs of them, you know, slightly moved, and then putting it in my dad's Kodak carousel and trying to spin that faster. Than it was oh, the st the stop motion. Yeah, exactly. So I was just fascinated with with animation, even though I didn't really know what animation was. And when I got a chance to. Um, get my hands on some animation software, I really sort of threw myself into learning that stuff. And, of course, there was no one teaching that at the time, so it was really just trial and error. But um, I then got my hands on the first um, Mac-based desktop 3D animation software called Electric Image, and um, that had been used to do some shots on Terminator 2 and bits and pieces and was very mm -hmm. capable software. And yep. I, um, I managed to put together a very, very crude showreel and had the audacity to take that into ABC and they gave me a job doing their graphics on Quantum, which was their science program, which is a- I remember Quantum very well. Yeah. Great so show. They, uh, they, you know, were obviously impressed with what I was doing and I, word got around and suddenly I was working for Discovery Channel and National Geographic overseas and- um, New Zealand, uh, NHNZ in New Zealand. and So I, I found the documentary world really, really, um, it was a great, great place to really um, get some sort of, get some work under my belt and get a, a really good understanding of what it meant to make stuff. Mm. Um, because in the documentary world, they'll often just give uh, a producer um you know, they'll, they'll hand him a camera and, and give him a sound guy and say, go and make this program. You know, there <laughs> Off was you go. Um, Good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, you, you've got a budget to do this and you get to go, we're going to send you down to Antarctica and you're going to shoot a documentary based on this. And um, one of the most wonderful documentarians, Richard Smith, sort of took me under his wing and I became his visual effects guy. And as a result, I was privy to all the crazy adventures he'd go off on. And literally, he'd take a, a tiny video camera. Sometimes the sound guy would go with him or he'd do it himself. He'd write, he'd shoot, 
he'd direct it, he'd come back and sit in the edit bay with an editor and they put together an entire program, yeah. and, which I thought was just magic. You know, I thought this this was complete black magic, actually. I didn't understand how he could, you know, go out, go off and hold an entire story in his head and then make it come to fruition ready for, you know, that week's program. So I, I really learned that there are there are certain core steps to making movies, but mm. there's a lot of fluff in them between that um, <laughs> can be dispensed with. Yes. If you, if you build up the right skill set. Mm. And, you know, that's a multidisciplinary skill set and, and it covers a lot of different uh, areas of the filmmaking process, you know, all from the writing to the, to the producing to the directing to, you know, visual effects to sound design, sound mixing, mastering. And then, of course, there's the all-important deal-making that has to be done as well. And so... You know, I've been across um, and in most cases put together those deals with um, the international um, team. So I was, um, yeah, I mean, this being my third film, I do, I'm not green in the industry and people do know the work. So that does help as well. I bet. So how do you develop your creativity, Matt? Where do you, like... To ask, to ask that another way, how, where, where do you get your ideas from and how do you develop that? Yeah, that's a, it's a funny thing. It's like where do, where do ideas come from? They can, they can come from anywhere. I mean, they, they can come from staring out a window and seeing a pattern of, of the smudging on it, you know. They can come from um, hearing a, a song. They can come from just experiencing something. I, look, I, I think that... Creativity is hard to actually determine what that is. I think mm. in this world of AI, um, it's a really interesting question because, I mean, there's this existential threat of AI taking over creativity. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. I, I think they're wonderful tools, but I think that what we're looking at in terms of where does creativity come from, I, I think it's... A, it's an amalgamation of, of experiences and influences. I, I couldn't actually tell you exactly um, where each of my things come from. Um, I can tell you that my distributor asked what drugs I was on with this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, I'll get to the secret kingdom in a moment, but I want to ask you about your apparent obsession with dinosaurs because I know some of your career has been dedicated to Dinosaurs. What's that all about? Well, I think we um, inherently all have a dinosaur gene. I think if you ask any biologist, they'll, they'll tell you exactly where it sits in the helix, and um, it's the dinosaur obsession gene, particularly for boys. But um, mm. I look, I for for me, yeah, I was, I was fascinated by dinosaurs as a kid. I'm in. I, I just kind of fell into doing them because. Like anybody who witnessed um, that first Jurassic Park. Um, Incredible. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I, I always painted and, and drew as a kid as a way to sort of try to understand what the world around me was about and how, how, how it was put together. And, and so the visual arts to me was really an exploration of that. And so visual effects, being able to actually 
build musculature and skeletons and all those kind of things um, scientifically uh, to represent the real world or real world objects or in this case, ob- you know, animals that used to exist and no longer do. I mean, that that to me was an absolutely fascinating process, you know. So I'd always wanted to do the dinosaur stuff um, and had sort of touched upon it with um, some documentaries here and there. But when Jurassic Park hit, it was just like I, I had to master that art for mm-hmm. And, you know, then I, I kind of fell into being known as the dino guy amongst all the documentarians. So <laughs> I ended up doing this dinosaur documentary and that dinosaur documentary and, you know, gets to the point where people ask me what my favourite dinosaur is. I don't really have one. I'm not – I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with dinosaurs. I just – it was something I fell into and I, 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 I know way more about them than I probably should. Mm. So, now, your, your work has been recognised with an Emmy. That must have been um, a great achievement. It, it was. It was actually quite wonderful. Um, uh, and it made more so by the fact that I'd already been nominated for two previous Emmy Awards as well. So this was my third nomination and first win. And that was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. It, I remember... I was living in Vanuatu at the time and I was sitting on the beach um, when the email came through and I went, wow, this Why? is incredible. I could, I've got an Emmy Award, just won an Emmy Award, <clears throat> still can't make a printer go over here. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about The Secret Kingdom. So it's on the big screen right now in cinemas across Australia. That It must have been a thrill for you when it finally landed in cinemas and you could go and watch it and see people enjoy it on the big screen? Look, absolutely. I think it's always great to see it from an audience's perspective because as a filmmaker, you know, by the time it gets to cinemas, I've seen it, you know, in excess of 100, 150, 200, 300 times, you know. It's um, it's something that you, you see along the way and then you see it, in sequences put together and then you see it in acts put together and then you see it in its final form and then, you know, the layer upon layer upon layer of that thing. So it's hard for me to actually react to it in the way that, you know, I I can't react to it like an audience will with fresh Mm. air. And so for me it's great to to actually sit in in a cinema with an audience and sort of gauge the way they're, feeling about it. Reacting to it, yes. Anticipating mm. what's coming up. And so that's it's a really interesting thing. And it's been wonderful to see that um, that it is – this particular film works on two different levels. You know, you've got the upfront spectacle in your face of all these wonderful creatures and wonderful worlds, but then you've got the deeper – psychological components that that are the subtext of the film and to see that play out and see the emotional response from both adults and children alike is that's really wonderful you know Mm. it's it's got a twist in it that everyone has described as not seeing coming right well i love a twist well explain to us maybe without giving away the twist explain to us what the movie is about um uh, on the surface level, it's about a, a young boy called Peter who's grappling with anxiety and um, 
I'm reeling from a, a, a recent family tragedy um, that we're not sure exactly what that is, but we can see the entire effects on the family and particularly on Peter as our protagonist. Um, on top of that, they've fallen upon some hard times and they've now been forced to move to a new location. Um, and upon arriving at that location, we find that um, Peter finds it very, very difficult to, to come to terms with it um, and starts, he runs off to explore the town after his sister. So his younger sister, Verity, played by Alila Brown. And um, Sam Everingham plays Peter. Uh, both did amazing jobs. Um, his younger sister, Verity, runs off enticing him to follow her and he comes across this uh, strange store where they find this uh, wonderful artefact. And from there, um, upon receiving that artefact, that night while he's sort of studying it um, and his sister comes in and tells him that he ne she needs it, uh, things start to take off as the... Uh, his room starts to crumble around him and they are both dragged, well, they both fall into an underground world. And suddenly these wonderful little creatures start uh, rolling around them and they whisk them off down into a down into the underworld where they're they're met with um, their leader who declares Peter their prophesied king. So <laughs> from there the adventure continues on. Wow. Yeah. So where on earth did that idea come from? That idea, I wanted to explore um, some things that were happening in my life in particular that I found a little difficult to deal with, you know, mm -hmm. some, some anxiety surrounding some, some personal losses. And, um, and I, I found this to be a wonderful way to uh, explore the ramifications of that um, is quite cathartic in a way. And I suppose that I am prone to, to, to coming up with visuals. You know, I see visuals in my head that, that represent things to me and, and, and those visuals presented themselves quite strongly, particularly the image of the two kids being whisked away on a bed into an underground system of tunnels, you know, riding on the backs of these pangolins that are rolling them towards their their ultimate conclusion. So did you start off, Matt, thinking, I want to write a movie, or did you have a series of ideas that you just started putting down on paper and it, it developed from there? What was the initial start point for you? Uh, the initial start point was that, yes, I, I, I knew I was going to do a new film. Right. And okay. The new film was going to be about these kind of uh, subject matter. Right. And from there, I, I sort of, I remember seeing when I, I was sitting online one day and just seeing this little armadillo just go. It was just a gif. It was just um, an armadillo standing there, and within a second, split second, it rolled up into a ball. And I went, "That's a really interesting defense mechanism," and was it just kind of became a bit of a, a visual metaphor for mm -hmm. feeling, you know, about the world in particular. And I loved the idea of them, but the armadillo wasn't quite right. I wanted something a little bit more exotic as a creature that, that is something we'd never seen before. I once got a really great advice from a producer who said, whatever you do, 
give the audience something they've never seen before. Mm. That's where I happened upon this um, this little pangolin character called Honey Boo Boo that was um, a rescue pangolin from the um, uh, in Africa, in South Africa. This little creature ended up living with this woman and he'd get into the fridge and, you know, just so, the way he walked and the way he carried on, it just had so much character. And I was like, that's just crying out to be uh, – Let's develop that. Yeah. So how long did that um, process of writing the film take? That took about a year. That, um, that was a long process. And mm. it's, it's quite funny because the, the twist involved in the, in the film is quite emotional and quite yep. heavy. And it was really something that initially shied away from doing because I felt that maybe it was too much for the, the target audience. Yes. Um, and so I kept writing the script, writing the script and exploring ideas and it, they just weren't coming together. They were missing the key ingredient, um, which was, you know, the the core loss, subject mm. of loss. And mm. that's, that's something that once I embraced it, everything fell into place. Really? Yeah. So when you're writing a movie like that, you're you're funding it yourself. Like there's no paycheck. Like no. <laughs> there's nothing, is there? It's like, okay, I'm just going to take a punt on this. Yeah. That's right. I mean, thankfully, my, my previous other films have done extremely well. I've been able to pretty much only take on the odd client here and there where it kind of interests me. Yes. Or whereby they had been previously very good clients, like the Australian Museum. I've done a lot of work with them and I mm. always loved working with them and their subject matter. You know, I did something for the Maritime Museum. I'll often take something on um, through my visual effects company, Hive Studios, where we feel it it's something that can push the technology in advance our pipeline for making these movies. Mm. So mm. there's been a couple of things, quite a few things we've done with the new technology for clients and, you know, that's it's been kind of wonderful too because it seems that we're the only people doing it and we're actually doing live 3D um, over Zoom and, and, you know, Google Teams so that art directors can sit in, you know, in their office or their house and say, oh, can we move that tree? Can we move this thing? Can we make the animal move like that? Can we change the camera? <laughs> it's all in real time. You see the final pixels. It cuts down on weeks of back and forth. So it's it's incredible technology. Mm. And you filmed it all on a green screen, and as I understand it, you then – that's when you moved to Tassie and then did all the visual effects mm. from your home office. Yeah, yeah, we um, we did. Um, the the um, the green screen shoot was actually a bit of a combination. We started off trying to do the virtual production stuff where we actually did um, some big ambient light rejecting projection screens and some ultra th short throw projectors, and that. That was really helpful to, to anchor the kids into the world, um, but ended up, you know, a few of those a few of those scenes ended up in the final film and they looked great, um, but it became evident too that it's a, you know, virtual production is a wonderful thing, but it is quite limiting to what you can do in post. 
because then you've got to start cutting things out if it's right. Okay, properly realised at the time. And really, what you're asking for with virtual production, and when I say virtual production, it's the kind of thing we've seen on the Mandalorian, the Star Wars show, where they've got those yes. great LED volumes and things like that. Now, I love those shows. Yeah, they're great. They're great, and it's wonderful technology. But again, it's it bakes in the final backgrounds, and therefore you've got to essentially bring post into pre. And mm. for this film, it would have meant, you know, two and a half, three years of pre-production rather than post-production. So, yeah, how do you do it? Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, too, that, you know, when you're sitting with an editor, you know, you you write a film three times. You write it first when you, you, you write the story, you write the script. Then you're rewriting that entire thing once you've, you know, once you've shot it. You know, you you you're doing a lot of the stuff that's on the 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 sorry the uh, the shot lists that are yeah. based on the uh, screenplay, but you know, lots of things happen on set. You get happy accidents, you get things that don't quite work, or you run into scheduling things. You might cut scenes, so you're essentially rewriting there. And then when you sit with an editor, with all the rushes, and particularly when you've got the ability to create anything. You start to rework stuff, so yeah. it gets written quite a lot. And I would say for visual effects films, you know, you do a lot of rewriting in the in the post room. You know, that's just the way it goes. What sort of um, what sort of cameras do you use, Matt, on a on a production like this? I use the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras, and they were just fantastic. They were great. They gave me the the latitude I needed. So. Great dynamic range on them, uh, very lightweight and portable, so that it meant that we could get in and out of areas and, um, you know, within the, the studio space, you know, mount them on things, you know, and it just meant our rigging was a lot less uh, problematic. It meant that also, too, I could have a very small team around me. So, yeah, fantastic cameras. And more importantly for the um, visual effects side of things, the B-RAW that we shot in, which is the codec, so the actual um, the file format that the, the footage comes out in is fantastic so that it meant that keying and doing all the post work with those plates was just a dream. And what, so- what software did you use to, to edit the film? Uh, DaVinci Resolve. That was the hub for everything, the, the entire edit, compositing um, and sound mix um, and mastering all went through Resolve. It's a great business, Blackmagic Design, isn't it? Oh, they're doing wonderful things. I mean, and for me, I mean, it's almost like they're tailor-making their products for independent filmmakers like myself who want to be across every aspect of the filmmaking process because they just, you know, I was able to sit there and mix in 7.1.4 Dolby Atmos within Resolve, send it out to whatever stems I needed for delivery. So, you know, when, you, when you're actually making a, a film and you're selling it around the world, you've got to be able to send out different tracks, so dialogue tracks, music tracks, effects tracks, and, you know, and, um, you know in terms of the Paramount deal, they've come back for optional tracks as well. So we need to be able to, you know, uh, all the breaths, you know, separate tracks. Mm. They can do different <laughs> remixes for things, yeah. That can take some time too. But, hey, look, I'm looking at a spreadsheet with a Paramount logo on it, so I'm not unhappy. Yeah, but you're pretty happy. That's that's a good result. Speaking of which, tell me about the international distribution plan for The Secret Kingdom. 
Well, that's all being handled by Signature Entertainment out of the UK. They came on early on. They'd actually distributed my previous films in the UK and they were typically a just a distribution company, but they opened up a sales agency arm and that meant that um, they represent films to other territories in the world as well. And initially they came to me back in 2021. They... they been the distributor for my previous film, My Pet Dinosaur, and they were looking at doing sort of something around um, that kind of vein. They wanted to do a, a My Pet Dragon, essentially, and decided they'd come straight to the source and see if I'd be interested. And I said, well, look, I'm actually working on this other film at the moment, and um, and so I'm not that available, but I'm open to talking. They said, well, what's the film? And I said, oh, look, I can show you some stuff. So I sent them seven minutes of footage and um, they came back with a 15-page glossy document on why they should represent the film. That's (laughs) – how good's that? Yeah. How good's that? Yeah. They came back, they put their money where their mouth is and they did a very, very, very good job at representing it. So they handled all the deals with Saban and Paramount and, you know, the various uh, territories around the world as well. So it's, so it's we, we hold Australia and New Zealand back for ourselves, and that's handled by Pinnacle Entertainment here, and um, they're based in Queensland. So it's on locally, and and it will be in cinemas around the world over the next couple of months. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah final question, after, particularly yeah, final the US. Final question to you, Matt. What's your advice to the young filmmakers, the young Matt Drummonds of the world? who are just getting started on their creative careers. What's a little bit of advice you might be able to give them? The best advice I can give them is learn everything Uh, and not just learn everything at a sort of theoretical level, learn it at a hands-on level so that you understand what it means to to mix to a, a, a compliant loudness standard. Know what it means to you know, deliver all of these stems to a to a distributor. Know what it means to to be able to utilize the latest in visual effects technology to to bring your vision to life. I, I think it, there's a real chance for young auteurs to come into the marketplace and work hard because this is not this is a vocation not a vacation at all this the i mean the hours i've worked over the last three years probably would equate to anyone else's you know decade i mean i was it was not uncommon in particularly the, the last 12 months i worked seven days a week without a break um and i was working a minimum of 16 to 18 hours a day. It just, that's what was required. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And that's just, that's what you need to do. Like there's, it's all guts and there's very little glory with this stuff. You know, you might get your your 15 minutes, but by the time you get your 15 minutes, you're pretty tired. (laughs) And, and, Unfortunately, if you if you're a creative, you you know you're only going to see the mistakes that you that you couldn't get around to getting out there, getting out of the the project because you're either you know out of resources or or out of time, you know. And um, but learn everything because 
when you look at any one of those credit rolls, you're going to see thousands of names. And not only the thousands of names that actually touched, touched something that contributed to the final, you know, pixel on screen, but layers of management and layers of, of production um, oversight and financiers and all those kind of things. I, I think that if you really want to make a movie these days, there are two ways to do it. You can go the traditional route. You can do endless pitches and you can, you know, try to get attachments and do all those kind of things. And you can probably be here in seven years pretty burnt out and still not have a project uh, up. Or you can get in there and go, I can make a shot today that will be in the film tomorrow and then I'll keep doing that until it's done. And now it's not for everybody because it does take time and time is money. So that means that you're going to have to find a way of sustaining yourself um, and sustaining others in your team. And if you're going to bring people on, pay them. Please pay them. Everyone who works for you should be paid. You know, it is not their art um, and it's not their job to sustain yours. So I'm a big proponent of that. And um, also you do get what you pay for. So that's why I recommend that you, you learn everything and you have a working knowledge of everything so that inevitably when things don't come back the way you want them, you have the capacity to adjust them. Very well said, Matt. Matt Drummond, Australian filmmaker extraordinaire and director of The Secret Kingdom. Thanks for coming on to the program today and all the very best in the years ahead. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much. 